Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Success Made to Last. I'm Tim Moore. This is the podcast where we talk with people who strive for excellence and do great work. Today's guest is F.H. Buckley. Professor Buckley is a foundation professor at George Mason University's University Scalia School of Law. He is a frequent media guest and has appeared on many shows all over the all over radio and TV. He is a senior editor at the American Spectator a columnist uh, at, at what Kevin Williams refers to as the indispensable newspaper, the New York Post, and has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and many other newspapers. He's published quite a number of books, and I wanted to touch on those in the podcast, so I won't read them off here. Uh, today, we are here principally, though, to talk to Professor Buckley about his latest book, Curiosity and the 12 Rules for Life. Professor, thank you for your time today. Yeah, uh, please call me Frank. I mean, uh, call me Professor and the mudslinging begins. No problem. Um, I'm of a certain age where, you know, that's what you called people back in the olden days, you know. And uh, many of them deserve the title, too. (laughs) In any case, uh, Frank, thank you. You know, Frank, I always like to ask people an opening question, which is really simple. Uh, but, you know, I think people like to hear about who these these characters are that we have on and talk a little bit about you, who you are, what you, you know, what your career has been about, um, your education background, you know, any riff on anything you want, but give people a sense of who you are. OK, well, it's a kind of a mixed story. I grew up in a small French Canadian town with uh, 13th century values and went to school. I went to several boarding schools uh, from which I was expelled. I ended up at McGill, was interested in analytical philosophy, um, bailed out of philosophy, went to law school, was fascinated by law and economics, ended up teaching that at Mason and uh, also McGill in Chicago and uh, in France. And I guess in the last couple of years, I had a bit of a sea change in my politics. I was orthodox libertarian until about 2014. And then it seemed to me that people were being left behind. And there was one moment that in particular appalled me, uh, Charles Murray's book, um, what is it? Um, coming apart? Coming to not coming apart, but uh, the, the book about uh, evolutionary biology came out. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember the title either. But yeah. So the notion was that we're divided between the big brains and the little brains, and everybody in my faculty kind of hugged themselves in delight because they were the big brains, and that just so made me want to throw up. So I began to identify more with, I thought, the people who were left behind. 
and in the end ended up writing speeches for Donald Trump and you know advising on the campaign and so on. Well, I didn't know that. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of mixed. Well, um, you've published a lot of books over the last half decade, and, um, you know, just um, I'm curious about them. I've only read Curiosity, but I think other people will be curious about these books, too. Well, give us a line or two, you know, an elevator pitch on uh, on each of them as I, as I read them off. The first is... The Once and Future King, The Rise of Crown Government in America. It seems to have an interesting thesis to me, at least. Well, the idea basically is that parliamentary systems, like the one I left in when I moved here from Canada 30 years ago, uh, are freer countries. Um, we, of course, are free, but our constitution didn't export very well. So I concluded we're free in spite of our constitution and not because of it. And I did all the number crunching that people at my law school do, and I discovered that parliamentary systems uh, are happier, freer, less corrupt than presidential systems. And we made it work, or we made it work for about 200 years, and we made it work because we were all roughly on the same page. We had about the same goals in the end, and that made for compromise. And now the possibility of compromise seems to have disappeared. So that's when that happens in other countries, um, a regime becomes strongly presidential. It's a question of who the president is. All power devolves upon the president, the only person elected by the country as a whole, right? And Congress becomes impuissant. And some conservatives say, no, 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 we should make uh, congressmen uh, more powerful. Right. Yes. How that, you know, I don't know how that's going to happen. They know how to count votes better than the theorists who are advising them. So I think we're settling into strong presidentialism, and that's a danger. Yeah, well, we've been settling into that ever since um, really Woodrow Wilson, haven't we? Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, I think, you know, it, it does disturb anybody who um, has read the Constitution uh, that um, we seem to now have governance since about 209, actually 213, uh, governance by uh, pen and phone, by uh, decree. Yeah. And then, and then you know, uh, uh, two years later, this the Supreme Court declaring that uh, 95% of those decrees were unconstitutional. Um, you don't have anything like the non-confidence motion. Well, the filibuster is a dead letter. In my book, I wrote that I believed in filibusters when people misbehave and filibusters when they have bad ideas and filibusters just for the fun of it. <laughs> the next book is... Um, uh, the Way Back, Restoring the Promise of America. Well, that relates to um, my sea change around 2014. Something else happened in 2014. Uh, a poll was taken, and for the first time, Americans said they no longer thought that their children would have it as well off as they did. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the American dream. And the American dream, it, it's not dead. It's just fled to other more mobile countries, notably Denmark and Canada. So when you look at mobility, intergenerational mobility, uh, we do very, very poorly compared to 
you know, the rest of the first world, roughly. We are approximately as aristocratic as Britain is. And that's not our idea of what America is. So, you know, again, you know, one recognizes this. One doesn't have to read statistics just to know there's a problem. Okay. Um, and that, again, begins to account, that helps to account for uh, for the Trump victory. I mean, very, very early, I, I, I presented to the campaign, uh, uh, I made a presentation on the American dream, having moved elsewhere. And that became a, a big part of the campaign. Interesting, to say the least. The, the Republic of Virtue, how we tried to ban corruption failed and what we can do about it. Well, I think stupidly, the Republicans gave away the issue of corruption to the Democrats, the Democrats being the more corrupt party. Uh, yes, uh, the easiest answer to and what can we do about it is simply uh, uh, outlaw the Democratic Party, particularly in well, yeah. Doesn't that work? Uh, no, we, we don't quite <laughs> want to do that, but there are other things we could do. We could do things that work towards addressing pay for play. Yeah. Uh, part of that would be to end the revolving door between Congress and K Street. Uh, we could also limit lobbyist contributions. I mean, you know, lobbyists provide very useful advice to politicians about what's in a bill because, you know, after all, most congressmen are bubbleheads. But, you know, they don't also have to run campaigns. Right. You don't have to give your soul to the lobbyist who will raise money for you, who will bundle for you, who will set up a team that will, uh, you know, uh, run your campaign for you. You don't have to do that. So that would be a start. But Republicans are very cherry about doing those sorts of things. So, you know, that's they're called a stupid party for a reason. And last, before we get to curiosity, American secession. A yeah, moving threat of a national breakup. Well, you know, there are a lot of people around here. I'm a bit of a nationalist, but nationalism to me means fidelity to the beliefs of the founders, because right? those were pretty good values. But there's another kind of conservative nationalists who think, no, it's 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 America is more than an idea. It's also a group of people with common values and common beliefs. And my answer to them is, if, if that's what you believe, then you are or you should be a secessionist, because that no longer exists. Right. And I went through a secession crisis in Quebec before I left. And I must say the debate in Quebec during the secession referendum was vastly more polite, more civilized, more collegial, no friendships broken up than anything we have in, here in America today. I mean, this is a... Uh, an unpleasant country. It's really a fairly hate-ridden country. And, uh, you know, one should be, it's also, I think, a rather lonely country, right? I mean, it's a country veering towards sociopathy in some respects. So if you had secession, you know, maybe that would be one answer. It's not what I recommended. But again, I did my number crunching, and I concluded that bigness is badness. In the case of a country, smaller countries are happier, they're less corrupt, and their rulers are have values more in tune with the wishes of the electorate. And we don't have that here. Which circles back, so, in a way, to your first book, The Once and Future King, because as we 
as we federalize more and more of uh, American politics, we move away from the smallness of our states. Yeah, we started well. I ended up recommending not secession, but something I called home rule, which would be federalism on steroids, right? Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a really decentralized kind of federalism, you know, frankly, of the kind they have more in Canada. You know, in, in immigration is a partly provincial power in Canada. So provinces get to decide who comes in, right? I mean, for let it happen here. Interesting. And now we move to curiosity. Yeah, right. Now that seems like that seems like a departure of sorts from the other books, but I suspect maybe not. When and and why did you have this aha moment to write a book called Curiosity and the Twelve Rules of Life? Well, I, as you can see from the prior books, I tend to move around a lot. I also, a long time back, wrote a book about laughter. And you know what it is with me. Uh, nothing hits the cutting floor. It's, it's all there. It's stored. And so I thought, well, you know, what's missing now is a sense of curiosity. Freedom doesn't mean much or anything if you don't have a sense of curiosity. If you don't have a sense of curiosity, you'll just do what you were told to do, right? And, and, and not question it. So the rebels are the people who defend liberty by following their curiosity. And then again, you know, Jordan Peterson had this book about the 12 rules for life, and I completely and totally ripped them off with my title, Curiosity and its 12 rules. And what was behind it was the thought that I had moved from Canada and, you see, in the great theme in Canadian literature is survival, right? Survival in a cold, inhospitable climate. I mean, that's kind of what Canada's like eight months of the year. Um, and so I thought, yes, well, that roughly describes where I came from, but it doesn't describe the country I moved to, which was more fun-loving, <coughs> right? So if you're a fun-loving person, it's more than just survival. I mean, Peterson book tends to appeal to people who really have kind of screwed up lives. And so I thought I'd write a book for people who have a happier outlook to life. And the point is, well, you know. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If curiosity is great, maybe there are some suggestions about what goes into it. And, if, you know, it was pretty easy to come up with 12 of them. If Peterson had written 14 rules, I would have had 14. Well, I got a kick out of that. There's a, You make a note in the book uh, about Jordan's book. And, uh, yes, what would you expect from a clinical psychologist from Canada, right? Um, I lived yeah. in Buffalo for, for almost two years. And, um, well, that, you're, you're an honorable 
Canadian. Yes, I, I felt like I was an honorable Canadian because I listened to the CBC all the time. Don, right. what's his name, uh, out of Toronto. Now, this is 30 years ago, but uh, it was um, – it was a great radio station, the CBC, back in 1980. God only knows, yeah. like NPR now. But um, in any case, yes, um, Jordan's books, and he's and he's very clear about this too, are for people who whose lives are disorganized, and he's trying to get them to the place where they can begin to feel like they have agency. Yeah, it's right. Of agency, it seems to me like curiosity undergirds agency because if you don't have curiosity there's no point to agency is there right yeah no point to individuality just follow the rules my first rule in fact was don't make rules rules bind you if you are simply a rule follower you're a machine man and the idea is to break out of them i mean their rules offer good hints but life requires something more than that. You can follow all the rules and be thick and mean-spirited and intolerant and nasty. So something more is required of you. And I said that I thought was the point in the gospel of Christ's message to the rich young man. And the rich man says, you know, okay, I followed all the rules. What else do I have to do to be saved? And Christ goes through the rules, and then the rich young man says, yeah, I've done that. What else should I do? And Christ says, well, then sell all you have and follow me. And that's the message if you want to be perfect. Now, we're not going to recommend that people do that, but the point is following rules isn't enough. So the first rule is break out of habits and rules. Yeah, I thought you put it really nicely because it is a kind of paradox, isn't it? But on page 11, you say, um, that's not to say that rules don't matter. They're the first cut in a moral answer. Yeah. And I think that that's um, a, a well-put way of, of saying it. Um, uh, the second rule is take risks. That's crucial, right? I mean, the period, important? Yes. The heroes we think we admire were curious people who took risks, right? So the great story I like is Jack and the Beanstalk. And the reason I like that is it's really two stories. I mean, one story for adults is, look at this idiot kid. He gives away the cow for a beanstalk. And the other story from the kid's perspective is, hey, it's going to turn out okay because it really is a magic beanstalk and it's going to grow. And, uh, you know, I'll climb it and there'll be a pot of gold. So the message for kids is take risks, right? And kids really, really need that message. Uh, I think they get less of it today because of indoctrination than they did in the past. And uh, so we should be encouraging them, experiment with different friends, different uh, boyfriends or girlfriends, uh, different ideas. You know, you'll figure it out. Let it just happen. So, and that's a matter of taking risks. And not, you know, not all risks will turn out. I mean, the guys who took risks were the great explorers who, you know, opened up the West. Um, sometimes they got eaten, you know, by the natives. And the message is sometimes it's not going to turn out well, but in general, what you can do is pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start over again. So the great risk takers were the explorers. They were, you know, they were also the founders of, of our high tech industry. I mean, back in the late 70s, Steve Jobs is his kid in a basement playing with some box. Okay, and he tries to sell shares in Apple in Massachusetts, 
And the regulator says, no, no, we can't permit this. Apple is way too risky. And they were right. Okay. Totally. Um, but they didn't help anybody by saying you can't take a risk. But, you know, but here we are. I mean, risk is a dirty word, right? Everything is devoted to eliminating risks on the playground, right? Or, you know, you know, range-free kids who walk home from school. They're in danger of being picked up by the police and they're sent to a social worker. We have this image of risk being bad. It should be the opposite. Risk-taking is good. Yeah, and it's when you when you look at the hero stories that really are at the centerpiece of any culture, as as uh, Joseph Campbell uh, beat into our heads in his in his uh, lifetime. Uh, the hero um, does nothing but take risks. I mean, he goes all the way back to um, you know Odysseus. There was a line early in the book that you used, and only people, only humans have the capacity to improvise. And I thought about. Uh, the the uh, adjective, the, the Greek word that uh, Homer used to describe Odysseus over and over, it was polychopos, many turning, the wily one, the one yeah. who can improvise, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, I mean, it goes back to literally to our beginnings that, that to be fully human is to take risks, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's part of it. That's one big rule. And, uh, you know, it it even includes the people for whom the risk didn't turn out if they knew what they were doing. You're to judge a risk ex ante before you know what the payoff is, right? And and sometimes you don't have a clue what the payoff will be. It's just a, a shot in the dark. But nevertheless, do it. And then you follow that up with a with a chapter called Court Uncertainty. And of course, my first thought was. Well, how's that different than taking risks? And why why split that hair? Well, it goes back to something an economist called Frank Knight wrote about the difference between risk and uncertainty. Risks are probabilistic. Uncertainty, you can't assign a probability. So a risk is like a coin toss, 50% one way, 50% the other. Uncertainty, no probability, pure shot in the dark. And, and that's what most of life is. I mean, that's what Steve Jobs was like. I mean, he got into it. You see, nobody had an idea that people would want home computers in 1977, right? Or how you'd find them, or how you'd manufacture it, or how you'd market it. Total, there's no probability you could assign to that. So he just did it, you know? And that's what these things are like. Yeah, I read last night in another book for another podcast something I had forgotten that um, the the original I'll call it the original Apple. Oh, I mean, he, Stephen Jobs did uh, improve this particular computer, but Xerox Park had created a, a computer called a personal computer called the Auto in ten years before 1979 when the Apple came out. And the people at Xerox were all, you know, old school uh, executives. And it took uh, this kid um, to see, my goodness gracious, this is, this is game changing. And to simply just simply jump at that without any reservation. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that great? It's a wonderful story for that reason. Yes, it is. Um You use, um you also talk, I think, in that, in that chapter about, uh, the 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 concept of 
that Rumsfeld talked about, which is unknown unknowns as opposed to known unknowns and known knowns. Well, I, I meant what inelegantly is called a crapshoot. That's, that's what uncertainties are, right? I mean, maybe if Rumsfeld had understood that better, we wouldn't have had the Gulf War II and uh, Iraq II in 2002. But that's in the nature of things. You know, he didn't know what was going to happen. And we were misled by some stupidly, wildly optimistic people. They don't always turn out right. Yes, events, dear boy, events. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, later on, there's a great chapter. I, not that the others weren't, but I mean, I, one I really, really enjoyed a lot, partly because you um, you talk about three great figures in history. It's the grit chapter. Show grit. Yeah. And and uh, again, not not to be redundant, but talk talk about it and why it's important to show grit. Well, I'm an academic, and a put down for academics is. He's a dilettante. So a dilettante is a guy who flits around from one topic to another, never really settles down and does any serious work. And that's a kind of curiosity in a way, right? But there's another kind of curiosity where you dig down and you do something productive. So, you know, one of the heroes was my old boss, Henry Manny. Okay. But I spent a lot of time on the other two, Wittgenstein and John Newman. Newman is interesting because here's a guy who is the pet of the Church of England. Okay, he's got a, a fellowship at Oxford. Um, you know, he's got a group of people who absolutely admire him. He preaches at a church there. Um, and he's got this curious desire to find out what's behind Anglican theology. And really what he wants to do is the following. He wants to say, you know, in the 19th century, the Church of England is the same church as the Church of England in the 9th century, right? We are the successors of that old church. And as he worked his way through the theology of it all, he discovered, no, that there was a radical break in his view at the time of the Reformation, and the church in the ninth century is not the modern church of England. Okay, the successor is really the Catholic church. And so after much hesitation, he decides to become a Catholic and eventually becomes a cardinal. You know, and, and I guess the point is that he never knew when he began his work where it would take him. And it was like step by step, it was a, a, a stairway that was crumbling behind him as he ascended. But most people, most people would have given up. You know, most scholars I know don't change their views at any time. They just go on mining the same field, right? Um, in law, particularly, you become the expert on some one thing, and then you that's your life, essentially. And that's absolutely deathly, right? I mean, going to law school workshops is a big reason why I wrote this darn book. I just I was so absolutely bored out of my mind by all of this stuff, by people who would devote their life to one thing, be it railway law or small businesses or whatever it is. I mean, that's just, that's just death, iron in the heart. Um, and Newman didn't have that. Newman had the grit to pursue what he started, and he didn't give up, and he lost his friends. Okay, and he joined the church, which felt uncomfortable about him, frankly, for most of his life. And uh, but he had the grit to stick with it. His story reminds me a lot of the story, of course, of Martin Luther, um, 
who himself spent 20 years or about 15 years, I guess, <clears throat> wondering about this Catholic church that he was a part of and recognizing that he had to take another path. But the other thing that's great about that story is that he, <clears throat> he is the embodiment of all of the rules that you've talked about to that point in the book. And I don't know if you realized that when you wrote it, um, you know, he's, um, he, he's, he's, um, He's not making rules and living them uh, blindly. He's taking risks. He loses most of his friends. Uh, he courts uncertainty, that's for sure. And he sticks to it. He has grit. Yeah. He's yeah. really a, a bundle of all of those um, those uh, right. rights, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I never thought of that, but I think you're right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, there's... Um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give the whole book away by going through all of the stories uh, because the point of a podcast for an author is for people to get, well, curious and want to buy it. But do you have one favorite that I didn't cover that you like to really, really, you know, talk about and that makes you giddy almost? Uh, With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The closest would be this thought. We have a whole bunch of commandments, thou shalt not do this, that, or the other thing. But we also have positive duties, right? They're less well known, but they're the duties to make life better for other people, to smile at strangers. There isn't that much of that going on right now. And to entertain them. So I admire people who can entertain other people. And before you can do that, you have to be curious about other people. I mean, you know, if you've ever gone to an improv, the guys who are successful are the guys who don't objectively tell good jokes, but tell the jokes that the audience will like. He knows enough about his audience to know what will work. So I had in mind, I guess, the brother of a friend of mine who had cancer. And his, he took chemo, put on a ton of weight, his face blew up, lost his hair. And he looked in the mirror and he said, I look like a clown. What am I going to do with the rest of my short life? So he learned magic tricks and he put on a clown's uniform and costume. And he went to entertain kids in the cancer ward of a children's hospital. So in the last year of his life, he learned how to entertain other people. He was curious about them, and that's a successful life. Yes, and that story is also in the book, although I can't remember what chapter. Yeah. The well, I so in the end, I said, curiosity is the key to so many things, including morality. Right? Morality is based, I think, on doing well by other people. You can't do that unless you're curious about those other people. And morality also requires self-insight because of the great possibility of self-deception. So be curious about yourself and your own motives. So 
In that sense, incuriosity is the root of all evil. It's also the foundation of religion because religion is based on what happens next after death. And for boomers, we're going to start thinking about that as we see our friends and lovers go the way of all dust. And as that happens, a thought will hit home, it might happen to us. And as that happens, I think we'll start thinking about religion. And so I posited that curiosity may lead to a religious revival. And it's happened before. I mean, you had, you know, you had the Regency period in the 1820s in England, followed by Victorian, Victorian uh, England. So, you know, there's, it's silly to try to predict the future, but everything is possible. And that's one thing that's possible. You know, after all, we boomers have owned the zeitgeist of the age, and this is going to be our turn, our last gift. Well, one would hope that that's the case, because uh, we've screwed up an awful lot of other things there, yeah. Frank. Um, you know, I thought the last... Oh, great rock music, come on. <laughs> oh, that's true. No, you know, I mean, for, you're talking from maybe, what, 63 to 79, is, uh, it, it, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? Um, no. And, you know, there's nothing before, well, there's lots before, um, but uh, there's not much behind it. Um, yeah. You know, I thought, the, to me at least, uh, for reasons I'm probably just curious to myself, but the most compelling chapter is the last one, maybe because it's a little bit depressing, although you do end on the uplift note that you just described, but it's called the death of, death of curiosity and it's directed at the state of affairs that we see in much of our society today especially in the media and, and in higher education and and you know and you don't have to be an ideologue of either the right or the left of to to know that that's not good because i mean just to pick one story out of the, out of the air we spent a year telling uh, the world that uh, and suppressing uh, the lab leak theory, and now it's pretty clear, clear to anybody with a cranium that works. <clears throat> and that it might be the only the only uh, uh, explanation that makes any sense. Uh, and that's a, a dangerous thing to do to 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 suppress information, to be incurious about it. <clears throat> In fact, it strikes me that <clears throat> you know we went a whole year and we and, and we couldn't get. The, the, we couldn't get the, the news that was staring us in the face out to the public. Talk about this last chapter. Um, and, and, um, and well, we're coming off I a horrible year. Why it's happened too. We we're coming off an absolutely horrible year, the year of the coronavirus and the year of the riots and the looting and the year of politics 24 seven, and the suggestion that if your mind wanders for a moment off the, you know, the, the horrors of American history, then you're truly a, a really evil person. And if you try to find some respite from all of that in sports or entertainment, forget about it because it's going to be there as well. So it's as if the whole world has been conspiring to make us incurious. Partly that's a matter of the extreme partisanship of the time. And partly it's a matter of rigid ideologies. An ideology is like a trash folder where you you can slough, slough off the people you don't want to hear about. So an ideology permits you to be intolerant and indifferent to the fate of other people. 
And it's entirely inconsistent with the spirit of curiosity. And it's, I think, in the end, deeply evil. It cuts off people from people. And as I mentioned before, it seems to me that we're in a somewhat sociopathetic phase in our history, right? Cut off from each other. We can't even see people's faces. I mean, <laughs> you know, and there indeed are people now uh, who still will wear the masks outdoors. I mean, if, if, if you want to know who the villains in the piece are, it's those people, in my view. So with all of that facing us, I look forward to a time when human nature will reassert itself and will say, no, it's, I don't have to be miserable all the time. And no, this is not the most evil country in the world, right? So, you know, we can't get back to those great rock songs of 62 to 74 in my telling, but you know, but nevertheless, there are old stations and there are other ways in which we can express our curiosity and find new things. You know, it's funny that you talk about rock because I often say to my kids, um, um, the, one of the great joys of being my age and, and I guess yours too, is that every it seemed like every week so an album came out with a sound that you'd never ever heard before yeah different than anything you'd ever heard i mean that's true of course in almost all the beatles albums talk about curiosity but i mean one week you might have crosby stills nash and young and the next week it's led zeppelin and yeah you, and you get it much different than that and yet um this was and weak, they, weak they, this kind of stuff. Shelley said the poet was the unacknowledged legislator of humanity, but in our time, it was the rock musician. Yes, it was, yes. And Rolling Stone magazine, which we'd read at the time, told us about what was important in our society at the time. You know, um, Ohio State, and a few days later, Neil Young pens Ohio, and it's sung. Of, you know, we hear it on the radio from Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Right, that defined our time. There was, it wasn't the counterculture of the time for us. It was the culture. Yes, and even though um, it was a time of unrest, um, I, I I don't look back on uh, on on the country rending apart in the same way that it does today. To be honest with you, yes, there were far more uh, bombings, uh, you know, by by groups like um, I guess it was the SDS and others, uh, but there there was a sense of uh, a sense. Of, of that the country had lost its ideals and that and that because of that there was anger not a sense that the country was a shithole that was you yeah. know that was forever uh, to be demonized and that's that's a big that's a big change and i don't know how we get away from that well i don't it's i think that's a matter of struggle um at your school board level and the like you know, the uh, the 1619 project is something I well understand because it's the Canadian version of the American Revolution, right? I mean, it's, it's counter-revolutionary in that sense. It's deeply conservative. Indeed, you know, here I am in Northern Virginia, and at this time, 100 and whatever, what, 160 years ago, uh, or 200 years ago, 230 years ago, some British soldiers freed about 4,000 slaves. What greater benefactors of humanity were there in 1780 
then those soldiers, now, I mean, and we're taking down statues, there should be a place for statues for these people. We might have to rethink our, our ideas about treachery, but surely Benedict Arnold deserves a statute on that rationale. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, look, it's madness. It's just, it, it's madness and it's not to be taken terribly seriously. You know, it's, it's a mental illness of some kind. It's best to tune it out. Well, I think that <clears throat> I think it is best to tune it out. Uh, but as my son says, Dad, at your age, you can tune it out. At my yeah. age, I have to put up with these people and they can ruin my career. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, that that is a <laughs> that is a way of, uh, you know, of, of addressing the seriousness of it. And again, we spent the last 30 years saying to ourselves, oh, it's just a it's just a phase. It's just going to happen in education. That's where all the nutcases are anyway. It's over there in the university. It's not really going to come to the uh, to to regular society. And you know, boy, were we wrong. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, there is a line or two on page one eighty five that uh, you know struck me hard, um, <clears throat> and I have to believe it struck you hard too. No one should be more curious than the young. But they've been betrayed by America's colleges, which is where curiosity goes to die. Um, that, that's got to deeply sadden you, as it does me. Um, yeah. I just thought that was a line that was so well done that you might want to riff on it besides what's there. Well, um, I think things, I think we have to blow up the monasteries. Okay. Maybe like Luther. Uh, I had a specific suggestion, which I pitched in the White House and made a wee bit of headway. I suggested we should forgive all student educational loans and we should impose the cost of that upon the colleges that trained them. And if we did that, the rotten disciplines would disappear instantly because nobody really is more avaricious than a college dean or president. If they realized they were training people for jobs that would make them unemployable and that this would bankrupt their college, they'd get rid of that fast. Yes, as um, I think Dr. Johnson once said in a different context, uh, the threat of execution clarifies the mind wonderfully. Mm. Well, um, that's another subject. and But how likely is that to happen, frankly, Frank? I mean... Um, these these are big, big big behemoths that trade off of the legacy of three hundred years of of institutional goodwill that they've ruined in in a generation. There, you know, there are good colleges out there. I wouldn't have the feds subsidize loans for colleges where the tuition exceeds twenty five k a year. More than that, let daddy pay if you want to send the kids to Yale. So, and, and by the way, also, if you did that, a lot of colleges would find themselves able to get rid of a lot of their administrative staff yes. who are basically doing nothing. But, you know, it's, it's where curiosity goes to die. And I don't know how it's going to be revived at an institution, institutional level. Institutions matter and they're self-generating and that's in the nature of the problem but it'd be worth it to 
do something about that only to hear everyone scream about it. I mean, I, I would enjoy that so much, you know. Yes, the injustice of it all. Yes. Into the yes. <laughs> that would be delicious, actually. But yes, well, I, it's amazing to think of a world, higher education, and the same, by the, by, by the way, the same is true of K-12. The data shows that there are now more administrators than there are teachers. How is that possible? Yeah. I mean, how's it possible? Well, you throw money and there's no accountability, and that's what happens. I mean, the sad thing is that our educational system, K-12 system, is, is utterly mediocre when we're comparing ourselves to other first world countries, right? And, you know, the, the, the OECD's PISA tests reveal that, that we do an extremely bad job of, in our public schools of educating kids. Um, so, you know... When I hear about critical race studies being taught in schools, I recognize that that's been that's pushing out that which the school should be doing, reading, writing, and arithmetic, which already they do a poor job of. So it's just making a bad situation worse. You know, it's you know, in, in the end, I have to put my money on us fixing things because we're at a moment where things can't get much worse. You know, and what somebody said is when things, just when you think things can't get any worse, they don't. Right. And, and, you know, that's true of American history. Uh, the two things have been true of the, of the history of this country. When we face the crisis, we've woken up. Uh, and, 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 and fortuitously, each of those times, we had a great leader in place. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, the three the three great, you know, moments in American history, maybe the four great moments in American history are uh, that, I, that I think of are, you know, of course, Washington, Lincoln, FDR, if you peel off his um, his uh, 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 domestic policy, but he was a great war leader. Uh, and then Reagan um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And and, um, and 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 when Reagan became president in our lifetime and. Could it have been worse, you know, to, could there be a better, worse time than since the Depression to live than in 1979? Yeah. I mean, I had a friend who had a mortgage. He was like, like 18% was his mortgage, and he was happy because it wasn't 21. I know, I know. The misery index. Yeah. Well, we're getting inflation back. Uh, uh, you know, uh, in 1980, there were people that Reagan could talk to. Like yes. Rostenkowski, for example. Right. In 1940 or 1941, there was Senator Arthur Vandenberg, and the Republicans that who had been isolationists came around. Yes. Right. The country came together painfully in the 1860s, and in our first secession in 1776, painfully. Um, so we've licked those things in the past. Have Americans so changed their stripes? Are the Zoomers so utterly alien to us? I, I don't know. Um, you mentioned your son. It's prudent not to lip off about what you believe. But as long as you don't get swept away, you know, and you wait for things slowly to get better. One of the reasons why I like a parliamentary system is because rapid changes are possible. You have reversibility. 
Here what happens is you get, by contrast, uh, a kind of a, a one-way you know, ratchet effect where bad ideas are adopted and can never be gotten rid of. So, you know, things like the Davis-Bacon Act back in 1920 or thereabouts, it's there, we can't get rid of it. So the problem with the separation of powers is, you know, you get it and you're stuck with it. Whereas reversing is really easy in a parliamentary system. Bad ideas get adopted. Bad ideas always get adopted, right? We only recognize them often as such with the benefit of hindsight. So the crucial, so, you know, in my mind, reversibility trumps getting it right in the first instance. So what we need is reversibility. That comes with a crisis. Maybe we're approaching a crisis. I mean, it, it may be in the next few years, if the stupid party can get its act together, we'll find a way of presenting something honorable and wealth increasing and noble to the American people, because there really is only one party that has the potentiality of being a noble party. You mentioned Reagan. I have a different kind of a pantheon. For me, it's Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, and Eisenhower. Again, I'm showing my, yeah, Ike. He was on the right side of civil rights. Yeah. He was on the right side. Kevin, Kevin Williamson from the National Review's favorite president. Yes. Well, there you are. He got it right. And what happened afterwards, you know, William F. Buckley, insensitivity to racism, yes, it's true. pure libertarianism of Barry. I mean, you know, we took a bit of a wrong turn. We took several wrong turns, frankly. But... I'd like to get back to that older honorable party when it was the party every decent person could support cheerfully. Are you working on another book now? I suspect that. You yeah, I've got a couple of things. I've got one in the hopper along the lines I've just talked about, which is what happens to the Republican Party. And my answer is roughly uh, I like Ike. And then I'm uh, that's in the can and I'm working on something on mistakes in conservatism. So I'm looking at natural law, which I think was right in its politics, but stupid in its philosophy. I mean, there are, you know, I don't like ideologies. So and what happens in conservatism is you have these cliques. OK, so you have a natural law clique, and you have a libertarian clique. And you have, uh, yes. you know, a traditionalist clique, ISI clique. They don't talk to each other, right? And they're intellectually weak for that reason. And they're composed not of philosophers or thinkers, but of politicians. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know. Well, what's the name of the next book? Um, the Secret Code which is, I haven't figured on the subtitle, but it's roughly how the Republicans can become America's natural governing party. Is it, is it um, with a publisher? Yeah, it's going out with Encounter again. Good, good. That's good to hear. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, then I'll keep, I, I look at their website literally every two weeks or so to see what they're announcing. So if you don't mind, I'll reach out to you. When yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, um, I've enjoyed this conversation. I, I, I want to ask you, um, 
Is there anything else that we should have covered as we talk about this book? Anything that you know that you really want to make sure you say to people other than buy it? No, more tune out all the people who are in curious, right? Um, it takes an act of fortitude to do that, but sometimes you have to walk away, and sometimes you have to walk away and signal your disagreement and communicate that there's something wrong about being criticized for, you know, being open and liking the Beach Boys and girls and surfing and uh, cars. Okay, so I never really left that period. <laughs> I'll tell you a little story. You know, I um I flew out to LA for work a lot of times, you know, hundreds of times. But back in the eighties, when I first started my career, I started to fly a lot. You know, I'd go out there and it'd be smog ridden, and it was just like you know horrifying. You know, all you, you know, that that air. But one one weekend, I decided to stay over uh, for Saturday and Sunday, and uh, it was a breezy day, and 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 I went. I took uh, the, I guess it was Route One down to San San Diego. But as I'm leaving L.A., you know, the sky does get really clear, and mm -hmm. I remember saying to myself. So this is what the Beach Boys were talking about. This is what people came here for originally, because you could see it um, in much the way I guess you still can along the coast today, but uh, it's not the same coast as it was in 1962 or three. I enjoyed your book a lot. I really did. I, 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 I you know, it's an extended essay. I like that. I like books like that you know had lance morrow on recently as his book um uh god uh, god and mammon uh which is another extended essay you know it's those are books that um uh you know you really get a sense of, of the mind of the writer uh you know the voice of the writer too and uh, it's a it, as a consequence it's a fun book to read i found uh, particularly since um i was very impressed uh, with the breadth of your reading, um, it's extraordinary, really. Um, and I learned a lot that uh, I didn't know. Life without curiosity is a horrifying thing, isn't it? And yet there are yeah. plenty of people that we've all met who wouldn't be able to spell curiosity, no less, uh, uh, you know, act upon it. Or who think that it's there's something deeply wrong with it. You're off message. Well, get off message. That's well, honest. that's because I, you know, it's because again, over the last thirty or forty years, uh, the left principally have convinced us that everything is political, yeah, and everything isn't political, mm -hmm. um, and and maybe we will get back to that uh, because I do think there is extraordinary backlash to everything being political. Um, the ratings uh, for everything on the sports is down. Uh, the Oscars. I mean, nobody watches anymore. I mean, what are they? What are they? What are the Oscars? Um, the Grammys, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is not. This is not because of anything other than the fact that we don't want to be lectured. Even if we agree with you, we don't want to be lectured. And at some point, we'll find that we're bored with it all. Yes. Which is yes. why, as much as anything, communism fell in the Brezhnev era. People got bored, and they told Soviet jokes. Yes. Now we can't even tell 
woke jokes, right? Where, you know, e even the sense of laughter has been experienced. Well, you haven't been listening to Dave Chappelle the last couple of oh, years. Okay. Or Bill Burr. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but on that note, uh, Frank, I'm going to sign off and um, say to the people out there, I hope you all enjoyed uh, this podcast out there in podcast land. And remember to go to successmadetolast.com to register for our newsletter filled with fun information about our future guests and great stuff in general. And go to uh, your podcast distributor, you know, iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, etc. And rate our show, please. Till next time, cheers and thank you very much, Frank. Thank you. Thank you.